0: and Sermon Audio Video. Tonight we're going to have what I consider a little different kind of study. Uh, I'm just going to be reading a lot of things to you that I want to share, maybe making some comments, and that will become clear in just a moment. The Gospel of John, chapter 8, words that probably every Christian has heard. The Lord is in a discussion with the Jews in John chapter 8. And uh, it says that as he spoke to them, verse 30, as he spoke to them, John chapter 8, verse 30, many believed on him. And then Jesus said to the Jews who believed on him, if you continue in my word. I don't know why a lot of Christians have problems with that, if you really believe the Lord, if you have really believed on Him, if you trust Him, uh, why would you not continue to believe on Him? The continuation of faith is not the thing that saves us, but it proves that we are saved. The same John who wrote the Gospel of John said in 1 John that a lot of professing Christians had gone away from the Lord. But he said, if they had been with us, he said, they were with us if they had been of us. They were with us, but they were not of us, he said. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. So Jesus said, If you continue in my word, now notice that to continue in faith is to continue in God's word, walking in his word, believing his word getting his word in you. Then you are my disciples indeed. There are lots of people who make professions of faith. Every believer is a disciple. The word comes from a term that means a learner. And every believer is a learner. We ought to be learning all the time, learning for the rest of our lives. But he said, you're my disciples indeed. This is the proof that you have really believed on me. And you shall know the truth, verse 32, and the truth will make you free. Now I told you when I began this series of studies about Islam and the Antichrist and the Christ, I pointed out to you that Islam came along around 700 years after the Lord Jesus Christ was here. Sometimes I don't Specify what I'm talking about. Uh, We all sometimes have something in our mind and we say something to somebody else and we think they understand what we mean and we were thinking something else. I made a couple of boo boos this past Sunday. Dr. Foster pointed it out to me. And I don't want to do that when I'm teaching. I like to give you the truth, but I had one thing in mind. I said something else and it didn't qualify what I said. I think this tonight will be clear. In 2015, September 28th, I have it right here in front of me, I received a letter from J. Sekulow, the way I pronounce his name, the ACLJ Chief Counsel. you all know who, who he is? He's the, uh, I think that stands for the American, is Christian, civil? Okay. He is a lawyer that has gone to, the Supreme Court, many times, arguing cases for Christians, for Christian churches, for Christian schools. And I believe he lives here in Franklin, Tennessee. I have seen him uh, and talked to him before at one of the festivals that we've had downtown. Uh, he has a radio program comes on every day. You see him from time to time on, uh, uh, on television. And he sent me this, probably sent a lot of other people this letter too, but it says, it's dated September 28, 2015. And here's what it says. It says, imagine your child or grandchild forced to recite the Islamic conversion creed in school. There is a creed that I have repeated to you several times here, there's no God but God. Allah, they say, is equivalent to God. There's no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. Now to confess that, to profess that, to say that, is the evidence that you are converted to Islam. So he said, imagine that your child or your grandchild being forced To recite the Islamic conversion creed in school, it's happening. In Tennessee, public school students are being taught to write, Allah is the only God. Their assignments actually explain how to convert to Islam. It's Islamic indoctrination right here in our schools. It's outrageous and it's unconstitutional, but it's happening nationwide. Some students are assigned to pretend you are Muslims. Others are taught to pray Islamic prayers and practice Islamic rituals. We're taking direct action. We're speaking with numerous concerned citizens and beginning to represent clients in these school districts. We're fighting to defend religious freedom in school and aggressively battling to stop Islamic indoctrination. Now, we're forbidden to speak about Jesus in the schools. You're forbidden to get a group of kids over here in the corner and have a little Bible study. You're absolutely forbidden to try to witness to anybody about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's forbidden. Even here in Franklin, a man that wanted to pray down on the town square uh, was brought up before the committee, the council of, uh, of the uh, uh, city of Franklin and told that he, they couldn't do that. And to do that, they had to have permission from the, the city fathers, the mayor and the rest of them, Uh, to go down to the city square, a public square, and pray. Now, that's how far we have slid in a very, very brief time. He goes on to say, We are fighting to defend religious freedom in school and aggressively battling to stop Islamic indoctrination. Schools are censoring Christianity and proselytizing Islam." That's what I just said. This absurdity must end as we represent these students, prepare demand letters, and send open records request we need for you to take action with us to send a powerful message to these schools today. That's basically the body of his letter that they sent out. And what was shocking is he says, in Tennessee, (laughs) not somewhere else, not in California or Oregon or Washington or Massachusetts or Pennsylvania, in Tennessee, public middle school students are being taught to write Allah is the only God. Now, in 2016, and by the way, that letter, as I said, was sent to me in 2015. That's eight years ago. In 2016, in June 2016, Presbyterian Church USA was opened with prayer by a Muslim. Reciting a chart in Arabic at the Presbyterian Church USA annual meeting of the General Assembly in Portland, Oregon, June 18th through 25th, 20, 25, 2016. Wajidi Said. This is what he said. Quote, he may have said more, but they sent me this. I got this, Allah, bless us and bless our families and bless our Lord and lead us on the straight path, the path of all the prophets, Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad. Peace be upon them all. Amen. Now the Bible says that the God of Scripture does not hear anyone who does not approach Him in the name for the sake of His Son. And I told you that the Sunday when we talked to you about the veil that was torn. When that veil was torn God says, no more will you approach Me through a temple or through some institution or through some ritual or through some ceremony. You approach me through my Son. and Jesus said in John 14, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Now what I want to do is expose you to some things tonight. And I, we, don't, we don't have but one young person here tonight. Well, we do have a couple of young people over here too. We've got three young people. So I'm going to have to go, I'm going to have to skip some of this because it's pretty graphic. And I, I just don't want to, uh, I want to be uh, discreet as much as I can. And yet I want you to uh, expose you to what's going on here. And I think it's important. Uh, how many of you have ever heard of a book called The Joys of Muslim Women? Have you ever heard of that? That's the book, a book by Nani, I guess that's the way you pronounce it. N-O-N-I-E, Nani Darwish. But Nani Dawish was a Muslim who was converted to Christ. So when you read that title, The Joys of Muslim Women, you think, well, but that's not what the book is about at all. I would, I would encourage you to get a copy of it. In the book, she says this. She says, in the Muslim faith... A man can marry a child as young as as one year old and consummate the marriage by the age of nine. Uh, The dowry is given to the family in exchange for the woman who becomes his slave. And even though a man might abuse a woman, even though a woman is abused, she cannot obtain a divorce. If she uh, is, accuses a man of rape, she must have four male witnesses. And often, she says, after a woman has been raped, she is returned to her family, and the family must return the dowry. And the family has the right, listen to this now, did you know what an honor killing is? I mentioned that to you a few weeks ago. It's a horrible thing. There was a woman that I read about, and she was in line to be executed. And it was over in Iran, one of those, I think it was Iran. But she was in line to be executed. And when there was just a few more ahead of her, they had a whole line of people who were going to uh, execute. She passed out and she died of a heart attack. And the Lord spared her. They took her dead corpse and propped it up on a can and put a rope around her neck and had her son come up and kick the bucket out from under her to show that she deserved everything she got because she had betrayed Islam in some way. An honor killing, this woman says and writes in her book, that the family, if she's accused of something like that, if she, uh, she's returned to the family and the family must return the dowry, The family has the right to execute her, which is called an honor killing, to restore the honor of the family. She writes in this book, husbands can beat their wives at will, and he doesn't have to say why he has beaten her. The husband is permitted to have four wives and a temporary wife for an hour. That's a prostitute at his discretion. The Sharia law, Uh, controls the private as well as the public life of the woman. In the Western world, Canada, Canada, Australia, United States, and Britain, Muslim men are starting to demand Sharia law, S-H-A-R-I-A, law. Okay, you've probably heard the term. Let me look at it so I have to make sure I've, I'm spelling it right. I have my mind somewhere else already. <laughs> Sharia. Okay, Sharia law. You know I've already taught you there are two major groups: Sunnis and Shiites. And this is a really conservative. This is when you're when you're a Shiite, which is a Thankfully, still the smaller part, about 90% of Islam, uh, of Muslims, are Sunnis. The, the Shiites are the radical Muslims. And that's probably what uh, uh, Nani Darwish is talking about here. But it says that in the Western world, that's Canada, Australia, United States, and Britain, Muslim men are starting to demand Sharia law, so that the wife cannot obtain a divorce and he can have full and complete control of her. And this Roman writes, It is amazing and alarming how many of our sisters and daughters attending American, Canadian, and British universities are now marrying Muslim men and submitted themselves and their children unsuspectingly to Sharia law. By passing this on, she says, enlightened Canadians, Australians, American and British women may avoid becoming such a slave under Sharia law. She says that the goal of radical Islamists is to impose Sharia law on the world and especially now in the West, ripping... Western Law, and Liberty in two. She also wrote a book called Cruel and Unusual Punishment, The Terrifying Global Implications of Islamic Law. That's the whole title. Cruel and Unusual Punishment, colon, The Terrifying Global Implications of Islamic War uh, Law. She was born in Cairo, she spent her childhood in Egypt and Gaza before emigrating to America in 1978. Her father died while leading covert attacks on Israel. He was a high-ranking Egyptian military officer stationed with his family in Gaza, which is where all the action is now. When he died, he was considered a shaheed, S H A. H-I-D. S-H-A-H-I-D. Okay? A Shaheed is a martyr. He was considered a Shaheed, a martyr for jihad, which is holy war. His posthumous status, that is, the status of his family and so on after his death, earned this woman, Noni, and her family an elevated position in Muslim society. But even though her her entire family was Islamic, she developed a skeptical eye at an early age, and she questioned her own Muslim culture and upbringing, converting to Christianity after hearing a Christian preacher on television. In her latest book, Darwish, her name is Noni Darwish, D-A-R-W-I-S-H. In her latest book, she warns about creeping, and that's a good way to put it, creeping, little by little, Sharia law. What it is, what it means, how it's manifested in Islamic countries. For the West, she says that radical Islamists are working To impose Sharia on the world. And if that happens, Western civilization, she says, will be destroyed. Westerners, and this is true, I remember this way back when I went to Mexico. When we went to Mexico 35 years ago, we got the idea that Americans thought that Mexico was like the United States. You'd be treated like down there. That's not true. And that's not true when you go into other countries. You're under their law. When you leave the shores of the United States and you go to some other country, you are under their law. You're not some privileged American citizen that has rights that we think we have here. So she writes this. She says, Westerners generally assume all religions encourage a respect for the dignity of each individual. That's what we think. But Islamic law, Sharia law, teaches that non-Muslims should be subjugated or killed in this world. Peace and prosperity for one's children is not as important as assuring that Islamic law rules everywhere in the Middle East and eventually in the world. While Westerners tend to think that all religions encourage some form of the golden rule, Sharia law teaches two systems of ethics, one for Muslims and another for non-Muslims. Building, this is a very important statement, building on the tribal practices of the 7th century. You see, Islam, modern Islam, is stuck in the 7th century. That's why they dress like they dress. They dressed that way in the 7th century. And they're dressed in that way today. They don't pay any attention to Western dress and modern trends of dress. They're not interested in that. They're dressing. They are stuck mentally and every other way in the 7th century. That's when Muhammad lived. lived building on tribal practices of the 7th 7th century, Sharia, tribal practices. Now, I don't know if you've paid attention, but all of the people over in that part of the world from Africa, Iran, Iraq, and all, they always have a chief. That's the way they live. The Bible says that when the mother of Ishmael, And where was she from? The mother of Ishmael. Where was she from? She was from Egypt. That when she was run out of the camp with her son. Because Sarah was jealous of her. And Sarah was the one that told Abraham go ahead. I can't have any children. So you you go ahead to my my maid Hagar. and, And I'll have children by her. And then the Lord said no I'm going to give you a child. When the Lord gave her a child there was rivalry. And one day, Sarah, the Bible says Sarah saw Ishmael, who was, do you know about how much older uh, Ishmael was than Isaac? Well, Abraham was about 85 years old, 86 years old when he fathered Ishmael. And he was nearly 100 years old when he fathered Isaac. So you can see the difference there, 14, 15, 16 years, give or take. Okay, so Hagar took her son and just went out and thought she was going to die. And it says she ran out of water and she put the boy over here under a bush and she went over here and was boohooing and crying and just, they were going to die. And the Bible says that God spoke to her. And she called the God that spoke to her, Thou God that seest me. And he said to her, Your son is not Isaac, but I'm going to take care of him. I'm going to bless him. I'm going to make him a great nation. He's going to be a great, great, great nation. And he said this, No man will be able to tame him. Now that is that is the characteristic of the Eastern people. They get together they get their mind on something and it's like dealing with a lot of what we would say in the West of crazy. No reasoning. There's no reasoning at all. And this is the way they are about the Quran as I'm going to ho- I hope I can tell you. Uh, I'm just dealing with one aspect here and I have an awful lot to tell you. Um, So, building on tribal practices of the 7th century, Sharia encourages the side of humanity that wants to take from and subjugate others. Now, she says that in 20 years, that there will be enough Muslim voters. I shared a little bit of this with you last week. There will be enough Muslim voters in in Canada. I would say, uh, this is 2023, I would say by uh, 2050, somewhere like that, somewhere in that neighborhood. There will be enough Muslim voters in Canada, Australia, and the United States, and in Britain, to elect the heads of government by themselves. And she said, rest assured they will do so. You can now see, she says, how they have taken over several towns in the United States. I mentioned and she mentions Dearborn, Michigan is one. Britain has several cities now controlled by uh, uh, Muslims. Now, I want you to listen to this. This is from a book called Terrorism and Islam, the Historical Roots and Contemporary Threat. The book is written by Dr. Peter Hammond, H-A-M-M-O-N-D. Some of you may have seen some of these things on the internet. The question is, can a Muslim, and I want you to understand now, when I say Muslim, I mean a radical Muslim. I think I told you that when my father was still alive, the boss of his company persuaded him. My dad did not like to travel. And his boss persuaded him as a reward to, let, to take him on a round-the-world trip. I mean, literally around the world. They stopped in I don't know how many nations. And when my dad came back, as far as I know, that's probably the only trip he ever took. It was over Out of the United States. But when he came back, he went on and on and on about the Iranian people. Because that's when the Shah of Iran was still running Iran. And he went on and on and on about what a beautiful, he said, I've never seen the most beautiful people, men and women, in my life. He said, they are, they are, the men are handsome and the women are just beautiful. Just Well, the Shah of Iran, of course, when the Ayatollah Khomeini came in with the revolution, he had to take a plane and get out of there. He later died with cancer, no doubt from distress. His son is still living today. I think his son is probably in his 60s or 70s. But that man was a Sunni Muslim. <laughs> He wore Western suits. You don't have to wear Western suits and be a good Muslim, but he did. And uh, he, he was uh, the type fellow that uh, got along with the West and said, you know, when you're in our country, you, you, can have the, you can be who you are and what you are. You don't have to become a Muslim and so on. So the question here that Dr. Hammond asked in this book, Terrorism and Islam... The Historical Roots and Contemporary Threat is can a radical Muslim be a good citizen of America? Now this question was forwarded to a friend who worked in Saudi Arabia. He worked there for 20 years. So this man in in Saudi Arabia for 20 years, he knew, he became accustomed to Muslims and their life and their way of life. And the question was asked to him, he was an American citizen, can a good Muslim, now a good Muslim is a, a Shiite Muslim, in their opinion. It's like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, okay? The Sadducees were the liberals. Sadducees did not believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe in a resurrection of the body. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the spirits. The Pharisees believed everything and added some to it. So you've got the Sunnis and they're the more general and liberal and you've got the Shiites who are growing in power. So can a good Muslim be a good citizen of America? Forwarded to a man who worked in Saudi Arabia for 20 years and this is what he said. This is really something. Theologically, he says no, because his allegiance is to Allah, the moon god of Arabia. What is the symbol of uh, Allah? It's the crescent moon. That's right, it's the crescent moon. I told you that Iran has black flags. That's their flag, black flag, crescent moon. Okay, He says theologically no, because his allegiance is to Allah. Religiously, no, because no other religion is accepted by Allah except Islam. And he quotes the Quran, Surah, that's chapter uh, 2, verse 256. He said, if you read that verse, you'll see that uh, religiously, a good Muslim cannot be a good um, citizen of America. Scripturally, Scripturally, no, because his allegiance is to the five pillars of Islam and the Quran. Geographically, no, because his allegiance is to Mecca, to which he turns in prayer five times a day. Socially, no, because his allegiance to Islam forbids him to make friends with Christians or Jews. Politically, no, because he must submit to the mullahs, the spiritual leaders who teach annihilation of Israel and destruction of America, the great Satan. Domestically, no, because he's instructed to marry four women and beat and scourge his wife when she disobeys him. In the Quran, Surah 4, chapter 4, verse 34. Intellectually, no, because he cannot accept the American Constitution since it is based on biblical principles and he believes the Bible to be corrupt. Philosophically, no, because Islam, Muhammad, and the Quran do not allow freedom of religion and expression, democracy and Islam cannot coexist. Every Muslim government is either dictatorial, have a dictator, or autocratic. Spiritually, no, because when we declare one nation under God, the Christian God, is loving and kind, while Allah is never referred to as Heavenly Father, nor is He ever called love, not one time in the Quran's 99 excellent names of him. Therefore, he writes, after much study and deliberation, we should all be very suspicious of Muslims in this country. They obviously cannot be both good Muslims and good Americans. Call it what you will, it is still the truth, and you had better believe it. The more who understand this, the better it will be for our country and our future. This is a religious war, and it is bigger than we know or understand. Then lastly, they threw this in. Can a Muslim be a good soldier? And he answered this this way. I had forgotten about this. He said, well, armor Major Nidal, Nidal Malik Hassan, opened fire at Fort Hood, and killed 13 people. He is a good Muslim, he said. The Muslims have said that they will destroy us, and they will do it from within. Islam is not a religion. It is a cult And in its fullest form, it is a complete and total 100% system of life. Islam has religious and legal and political and economic and social and military components. And it used to be this way for us as Christians. The religious component is the foundation for all the other components. In other words, the Quran, the religious component, dictates what the legal, political, economic, social, and military components will be. And for us, it used to be that the Bible, the Bible was called the mother book of all sciences. And everything from philosophy to physics was looked upon, interpreted, and expressed. Through the Scripture. Some have suggested that Islam represents the greatest threat to the world. Some have suggested, <clears throat> and I'm one who has suggested this, at least to a degree, that Islam may be the fulfillment of the book of Revelation in the Bible. Now, I'm going to have to stop here because we are out of time, but I want to tell you about uh, Islamization. I I want to tell you about how Islam intends to grasp power in the West and in other nations. I told you that this Noni used the term creeping Islam, and that is exactly what is happening there. So, I hope the Lord will use this to wake us up. We we began tonight by reading from John 8, where Jesus said, You know the truth. And He said, The truth to make you free, and Jesus is the truth. So, whatever happens in this world, we have a good hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And He has promised us that He will go with us through the fire, and He will go with us through the flood. And what we have today is we have the blind leading the blind in leadership in this country. So that we're giving away our freedoms to folks that aren't even citizens and taking away the freedoms from those who are citizens and who pay the taxes and who are the backbone of this whole republic. And I've said this before and I never get tired of saying it, this is not a democracy. This is a republic. When they drew up the Constitution, you know how many people were in this nation when they drew the Constitution up? Four million. You know what the largest city was at that time? Philadelphia, 40,000 people. Now, we have now in excess of 354, 355 million people. Pass this along to your congressmen, will you? And congresswomen. When they drew up the Constitution and they talked about electing our senators and our congressmen and all of that, right? It had 4 million people. 354 million people, even 50% of that number cannot vote in one day. So what I'm saying is our, our method of voting is outmoded. So they've used the excuse of using computers and as long as you have computers, you're never going to have an honest election. You can't even be sure of your checking account and your cards. And so when you're using computers to vote, you're never going to have an honest election. So let's suggest to our senators and congressmen, that they change that rule and give us two or three days for everybody to vote and you got to show up in person. There could be some exceptions for folks that can't possibly get there, but they could be checked out. That would, that would eliminate a lot of fraud. And it shouldn't be protested even by the liberals because it will keep everything honest and it won't defraud anyone of being able to vote. So when they grew up and said, we're going we're to have a voting day, they had 4 million people. Now we've got 355, 360 million people. We can't vote even if 50% voted. We can't vote in one day. So suggest that to your congressman. And maybe they'll think about that. And maybe the Lord will open up uh, so we can have a, an honest election. Our Father, we call upon you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe he is the truth. He lived uh, 700 years before Muhammad came into this world. And he said himself, the prophets were until John. So the prophets were over when John the Baptist came. And all of the prophets pointed to him. He was the fulfillment. He was the king of the prophets. He was the king of the priests. He was the high priest of all the other high priests. He's the only man in history that held all three offices, prophet, priest, and king. And Father, we, we, we therefore believe that any prophets, any prophets who come after the Lord Jesus Christ are false prophets. We ask you to help us to be strong. We ask you to help us to stand for the truth, to witness the truth in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for his sake we pray. Amen.